Suspicion toward leadership resides in all of us. It's, it's ultimately caused by our sinful nature. So we all have a natural distaste for authority, God's authority, and anyone else's authority for that matter. Parents, police, politicians, teachers, coaches, uh, employers, elders. We are rebels at heart, but our suspicion toward leadership is more. Our leaders often fail us. They, they, they don't act in our best interest at all times. And when things don't go our way, our suspicion intensifies. This suspicion then carries over into our relationship with Jesus, our King, because sometimes His will for us is very painful. We confess Jesus as King of kings. As Christians, we are actually eternal monarchists. We know his imperial reign and rule over us is supremely good. And yet, isn't it true that sometimes we're suspicious about his leadership and his good judgment? Isn't it true that sometimes we're at least hesitant about whether he knows what he's doing, whether he's actually acting in our best interest? We trust our king, but sometimes the inconvenience and pain of life lead us to doubt him, and our suspicion can surface in various ways as irritability, discontent, impatience, grumbling, refusal to obey, worry, questioning whether what he has forbidden really is all that bad or what he has commanded really is all that good. All of these express suspicion toward our king's reign and rule over our lives. We forget who he is. We forget that he is sovereign. We forget that he is supremely good, supremely wise, supremely powerful, supremely trustworthy, that he loves us, that we belong to him, that he will work all things, including the worst of things, for our good. We forget what it means to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We sometimes forget what belonging to the king of kings means for us. You see, the, the fuss and mess of life often distract us. We get spiritual amnesia and forget who our God is and who we are in relation to him and what we are to do in response to him. We need the gospel in order to remember to whom we belong and how we are to behave. Growing up, my mom told me before I would go out, she would say, remember whose you are. Which was really a creative way of reminding me that I belong to Christ. And when I'm going out and about, I must represent Christ. I must live in a way that honors him. Today, brothers and sisters, I want to give you this helpful reminder Jesus Christ is your victorious and reigning king. You belong to him. And the king is lovingly ruling you by his omnipotent word and spirit and defending you against all your enemies to bring you safely and joyfully into his consummated kingdom. Now that's a mouthful. Here's what I mean. Jesus Christ is your triumphant king, reigning and ruling over you now. He, he is bringing all his and your enemies into subjection. You belong to this sovereign. He possesses you because he gave his life in exchange for yours. He loves you, which is evident in how he leads you. 
He governs you by his word and spirit to lead you in the truth, to bring righteousness to life in you. He also defends you against your internal and your external enemies. He helps you put sin to death. He helps you walk in the newness of life. He protects you against the the nefarious schemes of Satan, the unrelenting lusts of the flesh, the sometimes very convincing lies, deceits of the world. He helps you progress on the battlefield so that he may bring you safe and sound into his consummated kingdom. The kingdom has come but has not yet been realized. Jesus the King is serving you to bring you into the fullness of his kingdom, to live forever in the presence and in the joy of the the King, of God. Jesus is currently serving his people by, by overcoming their suspicion, which is really unbelief, just a battle with unbelief. And he's doing that with his gospel truth. So remember, dear saints, that your beloved and gentle king does not quench a smoldering wick. He stokes your embers with his spirit and with his grace. Number one, Jesus is king. What what an important truth. Isaiah prophesied of the Christ in both covenantal and imperial terms. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to Uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Long ago, God promised a great Davidic king. And right at the beginning of Matthew are the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. John refers to him as the king of kings. Jesus is king, brothers and sisters, and Jesus is our king. Donald Trump and Joe Biden will bow the knee to Jesus, the king of kings. Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel and Pope Francis and all world leaders will bow before the king of kings. Why? Jesus is king. None rival him. Central in our text today is Jesus' line, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Who's the king? What's he like? What's the kingdom like? And within the answers to these questions are our confidence and hope. Jesus gave us some answers in our verses for this morning. Number two, the king's compassionate power. The king's compassionate power. Verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. This extraordinary historic event tells you several things about Jesus. First, Jesus is compassionate. He sees people in their sin and misery and gives them divine grace. 
This man was oppressed by a demon. He was controlled by Satan's power. What affliction. He couldn't see. He couldn't speak. This man lived in darkness. This man lived in isolation. And this man was brought to Jesus in his misery, in his miserable condition, and Jesus kindly cast out the demon and gave man speech and sight. What compassion. Second, Jesus is omnipotent, meaning Jesus has all the power. He's all powerful. No other power surpasses his power. Jesus cast out the demon and gave the man speech and sight because his power is superior to Satan's power. Whatever power Satan possesses, it operates beneath the sovereignty and supremacy and power of Christ. Satan is bound. His power has limits set by the sovereignty of God. Matthew 8, 16 tells us that Jesus cast out the spirits with a word. Folks, he didn't even really have to try hard. On occasion, in the Gospels, we see demons begging Jesus to allow them to do certain things and Jesus forbidding them to do certain things. And Jesus gave his 12 apostles, sinful human beings now, authority to cast out demons, implying that he himself had supreme authority and power over Satan and could confer that authority and power to his disciples, his apostles. Third, as Redeemer... Jesus reverses the effects of the fall in the world and restores creation from the curse of sin. Demon oppression, blindness, muteness are all effects of the fall. And in this one event, Jesus exhibited his divine ability to restore creation from the devastating effects of the fall. This one verse is Jesus sovereignly and graciously restoring creation from the effects of the fall, making things new, which gives a glimpse into his consummated or his realized kingdom. His work shows you what he's doing to advance his kingdom. So look around you At the world, the world that you and I live in, just open your eyes and look. You are seeing painful consequences of the fall all around you. Abortion, divorce, abuse, prejudice, violence, war, theft, corruption, disease, disability, sexual immorality, transgenderism, ignorance, death. The the effects are far and wide and they're painful. They're even inside you. Jesus proved he's the only one who can fix it. There is no other answer. There is no other redeemer. He's the one with all the answers and all the power and the supremacy. He proved that he can fix it all. And through the gospel, he's continuing his restorative work in the world. Calvin said, every benefit which the bodies of men received from Christ was intended to have a reference to their souls. Thus, in rescuing the bodily senses of men from the tyranny of the devil, he proclaimed that the Father had sent him as a deliverer to destroy his spiritual tyranny over their souls, end quote. Calvin's right. Making that man sane and giving him speech and sight certainly gives hope to you and me that your body will be restored at the resurrection. There is hope in that. And 
It also gives hope that Christ is restoring your soul and will complete that glorious work of restoration. Jesus restores because Jesus possesses supreme compassion and power. One day, brothers and sisters, Jesus will restore you, will restore me, will restore the entire creation in full unto our eternal enjoyment of the kingdom, the new heaven and new earth. We're watching it happen as the gospel advances and the church grows. Number three, the king's covenantal identity. The king's covenantal identity. The people were watching the compassion and power of Jesus and asking a covenantal question. Is this the son of David? You see, they're thinking back to the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David and promised to raise up his offspring and establish his kingdom. God said this offspring would build a house. For his name, God promised to establish the throne of this offspring's kingdom forever. And this offspring would be to God a son, and David's throne would be established forever. Now, if we jump to Hebrews 1.5, it confirms that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The people were seeing Jesus do all kinds of miraculous things like producing bread and fish for thousands of people, healing diseases, healing disability, restoring lives, overcoming satanic power, and they connected it to God's promise of the serpent slaying seed, son, savior, and sovereign presented in the covenants, promised in the covenants. But they were hesitant because he wasn't using his power for national interests. Why wasn't he using his power to restore supremacy to the nation of Israel? Why wasn't he doing that? Why wasn't he gathering an army to rebel against Rome? What was he doing? The Greek suggests now that their question assumes a negative answer. It was kind of like, he surely cannot be the son of David, can he? Kind of that that tone of it. They were open, but they were skeptical. And I think the Greek here suggests at least some level of unbelief. A humble and lowly servant performing powerful miracles and preaching the gospel didn't seem to coincide with their national and religious interests. They were amazed, but not in the way that they thought that they would be amazed by the Christ. So something didn't sit well with them. They missed that it's a spiritual kingdom. Like Jesus clearly said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus came as a spiritual revolutionary, a spiritual savior, a spiritual king. The Christ sent to crush the head of the serpent to save people from their sin and their spiritual misery and to give them eternal life in the kingdom of God, to give them the restored heaven and to rid all the earth of all evil where God will then dwell with his people forever. Healing pitiful demon-oppressed people was the beginning of God's kingdom for the king was beginning to restore creation from the effects of the fall. It's a picture of what is coming in full at the return of the king of kings. Restoration through judgment and grace. 
So, and I want you to get this point very carefully and listen, because many uh, Christians are confused about this point today. The church's ministry is not one of political or earthly revolution. Our primary mission is not to win the culture war or to take over the White House or to take over the Senate. Our mission as the church of Jesus Christ is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation and eternal life of sinners. That's our mission. Don't forget what our mission is. Number four, the king's crazy opposition. And by crazy, I mean irrational and ridiculous. Irrational and ridiculous. Verse 24, this is amazing. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Excuse me? What are you talking about? You're making no sense. That doesn't make any sense. Now let's understand what they're saying. The Pharisees heard people entertain the idea that Jesus might just be the son of David, and that enraged them. They didn't want to think about that. They couldn't stand the thought of Jesus being God's promised Christ. The Pharisees and many others wanted another Christ, a Christ that aligned with their presuppositions and their their interests and agendas, and so they fumbled about to find an argument against Jesus. And, And the argument that they settled on was completely absurd. Absurdity is born out of spiritual anarchy. Absurdity is the byproduct of rebellion against God. They didn't question Jesus' authority and power. Well, his authority, but not his power. They just didn't like that he had power and the authority which he was linking it to, and they didn't like how he was using the power. So think this through. It's tempting to resort to ad hominem arguments when you have no logical argument to make, meaning this. When people realize that they have no logical argument to make, they attack the person instead of actually making a logical argument. The Pharisees had no logical argument against Jesus being the son of David. Therefore, they attributed Jesus' power to Satan without any logical argument as to why Jesus was not the son of David, they attack him. Well, Beelzebul may be referring to the Philistine god Beelzebub, as mentioned in 2 Kings 1, but it certainly refers to either Satan or a high-ranking demon among Satan's militia. Their argument amounted to this. By the power of Satan, Jesus is casting out Satan. Is that logical? Absurdity is born out of spiritual anarchy. The arguments waged against the gospel are countless and can sometimes sound very sophisticated, uh, intellectual, even convincing sometimes. But at their core is absurdity because the objections actually arise from moral rebellion against God. We have to be Clear on that. There is no cogent argument against the gospel. Any argument made against the gospel is at its core essentially an ad hominem argument. Not a rational defense of the truth, but rather an attack on God himself. Absurdity is the byproduct of rebellion against God. Well, as wisdom incarnate, Jesus gave the Pharisees a rational response. 
He's the rational one. He's the one that has the arguments. Number five, the king's cogent argument. The king's cogent argument. By cogent, I mean Jesus' argument is clear, convincing, and correct. With little effort, he refutes their, their absurdity. Verse 25 tells us that he knew their thoughts. His divine knowledge took them into their hearts and minds to know the spiritual anarchy that was there. And Jesus responded, look at verses 25 through 29 again. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Do you understand his logic? It's pretty simple. Civil war brings kingdoms and cities to ruin. Right? Civil war, bad things. Strife between a husband and a wife brings ruin to a family. What if back in 2003, President George W. Bush deployed the Marines to invade Iraq, but then also deployed the army to join the insurgents to stop the Marines from invading? That would be absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. If Satan casts out Satan, he's working against himself. His kingdom of darkness would be divided. It couldn't stand. To say that Jesus cast out a demon of Satan by the power of Satan is absurd. The Pharisees, they saw the demon cast out. They're not arguing about the power. They can't argue with the reality that's right in front of them. This worked. They had no logical reason, <clears throat> excuse me, why this was not done by the Spirit of God. And so what did they do? They vilified him. They attacked him. Leon Morris said, quote, the Pharisees were taking up an impossible position, unquote. That's right, impossible. And I love it. Jesus is masterful with his thinking. He turns it on them then. See, their sons, which may refer here to Jewish exorcists, supposedly cast out demons on occasion. Jesus frequently cast demons out with irrefutable power and effect. So if Jesus cast them out by the power of Satan, the Pharisees' sons surely did as well. So if the Pharisees confirm that their sons cast out demons by God's authority, the only authority supreme over that, then they must concede that Jesus did as well. Because demons are not cast out by the power of Satan. The Pharisees were trapped. Trapped. And the testimony of their sons that demons are cast out by the power of God ends up being the judgment against the Pharisees. So it's never a good idea to argue with Jesus because he wins all the time. Super rational. He's truth. If Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God had come upon them, meaning the kingdom of God had come upon them. 
He preached this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The pre- he made it clear before. It had come. And again, it, it didn't come in full, not the consummation of the kingdom, but it had come and it was advancing. So citizens of the kingdom. Jesus the king is overcoming Satan and he's reversing the effects of the fall. We see it when someone gets saved. We see it when the Spirit produces holiness in us and sanctifies us. That's the kingdom advancing. When we live for righteousness and grow from day to day. Jesus argued quite cogently for his own supremacy. Number six, the king's compelling supremacy. The king's compelling supremacy. It puzzles me, brothers and sisters, when professing Christians are suspicious about God's absolute sovereignty over evil. That's puzzling to me. Some Christians talk about evil as if it can frustrate the purpose and plan of God. Passages like this clearly solidify God's sovereignty over all things, including evil. When the demon was cast out and the man spoke and saw, it displayed the supremacy of Christ over the kingdom of darkness. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is superior in every way. Satan exists, brothers and sisters, and acts beneath the absolute sovereignty of Christ. Therefore, seeing the supremacy of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in his miracles and in his ministry should have brought the Pharisees to their knees in worship before the King of kings and the Lord of lords because the king was in their midst conquering and restoring for the glory of God. In Luke 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus answered like this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. The kingdom wouldn't come with pageantry and political supremacy. Jesus is king, and the king was standing among them, advancing his kingdom by overcoming the oppression of Satan and saving his people from their sins and misery and reversing the effects of the fall. He was doing it. The kingdom had come as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus had begun his mediatorial work to rescue, redeem, and restore his people. As one source says, quote, the kingdom of God is inaugurated, though not completely realized in the ministry of Jesus, end quote. So watch Jesus, watch him, study him, look at his ministry closely, and you know what the king is about and what the kingdom is about. What was he doing? Look at verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So if a robber is going to be successful, and I know, because I've been there, okay? No, I haven't robbed anybody. But uh, just kidding about that, okay? Don't need to be in the newspapers. They must first tie up the strong man, tie up the homeowner. You have to contain the homeowner. You can't just go in and rip off all of his stuff or you'll get a club to the back of the head. 
You have to take care of the strong man. Bind him up. The strong man or the homeowner is Satan. Jesus bound him to plunder his power and effect in the world. Jesus was binding the strong man through his preaching, through his healing, through his teaching, and eventually his cross. Remember Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was conquering by redeeming. And one study note expressed it like this, Jesus was able to expel demons because he had bound Satan, the strong man. Beginning with Jesus' victory over Satan during the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus demonstrated that Satan was powerless to prevent him from proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and demonstrating the reality of its presence through his work and his words. Satan's house represents the sinful world over which, until the coming of Christ, he had such power. Jesus has come to plunder his house and rescue people for the kingdom of God, unquote. Another source added this, Jesus explained that when he cast out demons by the Spirit of God, it meant that the kingdom of God had come. In his work, he was binding the strong man, that is the devil, who formerly had been keeping people in the dark and painful prison of unbelief, sin, and certain judgment, unquote. So understand then, God sent his only son, the son of David, to rescue his people from the darkness of their sin and misery and to give them life in the kingdom of God. Folks, Jesus the King has supremacy now. He has supremacy now. Satan is bound. Through the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God is advancing in sweet victory over Satan, sin, and death. And and verses 31 and 32, if you glance quickly, they assume that Jesus has the authority to grant forgiveness and to withhold forgiveness. He's not losing the battle. Our king has set us free from the tyranny of the devil, amen? He has secured our inheritance of the kingdom, amen? And And he is winning in us by restoring us after the image of Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So brothers and sisters, do not grow discouraged at the evil around you and in you. Do not grow disheartened at the brokenness of our world and the brokenness in you. Do not fear for you belong to the king, brothers and sisters. And the king has supremacy, and his kingdom is prevailing as he conquers the enemies in you and around you to bring you safely into his eternal kingdom. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. There are only two sides, just two. Jesus made it clear in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Folks, everybody takes a side. Everybody takes a side. Jesus made it clear 
If you are not with Jesus in true faith, with him in doctrine, obedience, and mission, then you are against him. Whoever does not gather with Jesus is actually scattering people from Jesus. That's what the very religious Pharisees were doing. Very religious men scattering people from Jesus. They personally identified with God, but not with Jesus, so they were actually opposing God and scattering people from him. So, does the supremacy of Jesus Christ astonish you? Does it attract you? Do you want to be unreservedly and unashamedly submitted to the king's truth, authority, grace, sovereignty, supremacy, power, reign, rule, command, shepherding? Those who truly love Christ truly want to submit to Christ. Jesus Christ is your victorious and reigning king. You belong to him. And the king is lovingly ruling you by his omnipotent word and spirit and defending you against all your enemies to bring you safely and joyfully into his consummated kingdom. Does this move you to thankfulness? Does this move you to obedience? Does this move you to faithfulness to the king, to holiness? Now, one of the biggest theological questions in the Christian faith is what is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin? Huge question. And J.C. Ryle, an old dead guy that I really respect and enjoy reading, he said this, which humbles me. The sin against the Holy Spirit in particular has never been fully explained by the most learned divines. It is not difficult to show from Scripture what the sin is not. It is difficult to show clearly what it is. Well, good grief. What am I going to say about it? I'm not among the most learned of divines. And so I will say a little about this. First, whatever the unforgivable sin is exactly and precisely, if you are concerned deep down that you might have committed it and are therefore anxious that you may not spend eternity with your heavenly Father and your glorious Christ, whom you love because you desperately want to spend eternity in the presence of your triune God, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. The unforgivable sin. Rest in God's grace and rest in his love for you. Don't worry about it. Second, what is the eternal sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Something that we need to be aware of and be thinking about. Well, I've thought in the past that it was simply willful and perpetual unbelief. Now, unbelief, that the kind that we continue to struggle with and are repenting of is forgiven by the blood of Christ, but perpetual unbelief until the end and rejection of Jesus is not forgiven. But I think it's a little sharper than that. So what sin had the Pharisees just committed? Certainly unbelief, they weren't believing, but they saw the power of Jesus and with no rational argument against it, obstinately and irrationally attributed his power to Satan. That's key. So the unpardonable sin seems to be recognizing the power of Jesus and equating the power of the Holy Spirit to the power of Satan. I think Dr. Dan Doriani is really close when he writes this. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony to him. 
This blasphemer has heard the gospel proclaimed with clarity and power. He has watched Christians live good lives, yet he hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. He hears, understands, and despises. We see why this sin is unpardonable. How can one turn to Christ and be saved when he has seen all the evidence and rejected it as a terrible evil? Unquote. And that's probably it. And the closest modern example that I can think of, and this is dangerous because I don't know whether this is the uh, unpardonable sin or not. I, I don't know hearts and all of that. I don't know if this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but this is the closest in my mind is Christopher Hitchens, who uh, is the well-known and brilliant atheist who died back in 2011 of cancer. He grew up in a nominally Christian home. He went to Christian boarding schools and he knew the gospel of substitutionary atonement better than some Christians do, I think. His surviving brother, Peter, is an outspoken Christian. And Christopher Hitchens once said that, quote, the teachings of Christianity are immoral, unquote. He said that the central teaching of vicarious redemption, where Jesus takes our sin upon himself and suffers in our place, that due penalty of the law, quote, is the most immoral of all, unquote. He even thought that God's command to love God was, quote, not mentally or morally or intellectually healthy, end quote. That's like saying Jesus is crazy and immoral, I think that's at least close to Jesus' meaning. There's a point where the human heart becomes so hardened and calloused and opposed to Christ that there is no redemption. There's no salvation. Many people, if you think, in our culture, they blaspheme Jesus' name. They use it as a curse word. I, I'm taken aback by Christians using God's name, either the term God or Lord or Jesus Christ, so flippantly. They don't even care. It just comes right out. They're not even thinking that they're blaspheming God. And so the world certainly blasphemed God. Watch a movie. But it's striking. Very few people will go as far to connect Jesus to the work of Satan. Number seven, the king's compassionate care. The king's compassionate care. Do you know how all of this applies to you? Uh, part of Jesus' identity as the Christ is his kingly office. That's not all that he is, but that's part of his office, he, his kingship. And Heidelberg 31 says that Jesus is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So the better we know the imperial majesty and power of Jesus, the more confidence we have in his governance, defense, and preservation of us, in his word and spirit, in his ongoing ministry to us through the local church. And this confidence in the king brings closeness with, comfort from, and commitment to the king himself. Saints, the kingdom of Christ is the church united to Christ by faith. Christ Jesus, here it clearly is sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords over all things, but he serves his church as their glorious and sovereign king. Zacharias, your sinus, wrote this, the king of kings is Christ, who was immediately ordained of God that he might govern by his word and spirit, the church which he purchased with his own blood. 
and defend her against all her enemies whom he will cast into everlasting punishment while he will reward his people with eternal life, end quote. Okay, so you and I confess Jesus as king. That's our confession. Do you know how the king serves you? Do you know what he's doing for you? He rules you by his word and spirit. You hear his word and the spirit helps you do it. He defends you against your enemies, giving you all the weapons that you need to fight and overcome the flesh, the devil, and the world. He equips you, brothers and sisters. He is liberating you. He is restoring you. He is conquering all his and your enemies in order to bring you safely into his consummated kingdom. What do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? Now we pray it, we pray it often, but do we have any idea what we're asking for? And if we're confused about what we're asking for, do we really desire what we're asking for? We have to be clear on this. What are we, what are we doing? What are we asking for? We're asking, rule us, O great King Jesus. Rule us by your word and spirit and bring us into complete subjection to you. Complete submission. Preserve and grow your church. Vanquish Satan and every enemy of Christ and do it until the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns for our good and God's glory. That's what we're asking. A lot of people, they confess Jesus is king, but then they don't show much interest in knowing his word, knowing what the king says and commands, following his spirit, submitting to his authority, not much care at all. Let us not be suspicious of our king. He is good. He has our best interests in mind. And so, brothers and sisters, it is good for us to joyfully submit to him in all things. And so, let's help one another do just that, to submit to the king.